welcome to this podcast from the Charter Banker Institute on the future skills of learning in banking. This is episode six with me, Bill McCall, a past president of the Institute, and I happen to be a corporate financier too. The idea for these podcasts came from the annual banking conference in November 2020, when our Institute put together a panel session on creating lifelong learning in the workplace with the catchy title of you don't know what you don't know. If you haven't watched it, that session is available and I thoroughly recommend you watch it after hearing these podcasts. Throughout the series, we are looking at many different aspects of the future of professional skills and learning in the banking sector. And we also bring in experts from out with the banking profession to bring their perspective. Joining me today are two guests, both principals with Amicus, a specialist advisory business, coaching top teams on matters of resilience, strategic planning, and organizational health. Jennifer Carnegie has over 20 years working with international organizations and was chief people officer with Digicel, a global telecoms and entertainment provider. Jennifer has managed large teams of people in complex situations and was instrumental in creating and running a global corporate university for the Mars Corporation. She has worked all over the globe. Sir Peter Wall had a 45-year career in the British Army, graduating as an engineer and also from the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst. As Chief of the General Staff, he later led the British Army in a significant period of change and brings a wealth of leadership experience to all sorts of settings. To both our guests, a very warm welcome from the Chartered Banker Institute. Jennifer, going back to that work with Mars, the creation of a, a learning organization within a, a, a complex family-related type organization like Mars, um, what was the objective for that organization? Was it about people or skills or succession or development or what was the, the focus of it? I think, Bill, it was all of those things, actually. Mars has an excellent track record in, in the learning and development space. And the setup of the university was really about bringing it all together around the globe, making it much more organized, much more focused, um, so that people could take advantage of the global nature of Mars and, um, and really share skills. So Mars is a, a fantastic example of a company that doesn't pigeonhole you into a particular skill set. So just because you have a qualification doesn't mean that you have to stay in that stream your whole career. They're, they're quite happy to have engineers that might want to move into marketing or production people that might want to move into sales. And the university was just a way of organizing on a global scale um, all of that talent development. The, the university certainly at that time was all virtual. And, um, you know, we're talking more than 10, 12 years ago now. So it was quite groundbreaking at the time. How very um, far-sighted of you at the time. <laughs> yeah, and I think, that, you know, it's an organisation, as a lot of big companies do, they put a lot of money and time and effort into developing their talent. And I think it stood them in very good stead. So that was obviously about people and purpose and delivering outcomes and, and using the resources of human capital within the organization. So Peter, you've often talked about a leadership deficit leading to underperformance and perhaps even worse still, failure. Um, 
perhaps through an unwillingness to challenge the senior voice. Now, as the very senior voice, as chief of the general staff in the British Army, you must have witnessed that, I would have thought. Well, I think that there is a, a general leadership deficit because I think uh, business is getting harder. I think all walks of life getting harder. Uh, the uh, impact of regulation, the competitiveness in the marketplace, the inherent fragility and lack of resilience that we're seeing as a consequence of a whole raft of vectors, not least um, globalization when it goes wrong, means that um, leaders are having it uh, tougher, probably than they might have done in a bygone era. Uh, there's, a, there's a high demand and there's not a lot of training that goes on. People are learning on the job. So they may turn out to be very good, but they go through a kind of formative period where perhaps they're not as effective as, as, they, as they could be. I do think one of the things that's changed hugely since I joined the army 45 years ago is the degree of deference in society, which has reduced dramatically. And that can only be a good thing because a good organization is one that uh, not only wants to hear uh, from its people in terms of, you know, what do they think of the company in terms of our engagement and uh, discretionary activity and motivation and so on, but actually actively involves them and their perspective in making their decisions and driving the business forward. And that argues very strongly for a delegated sort of way of operating. So you, you talked there about challenging um, the, the levels of authority you, you have in the past also spoken about red team activity. Um, perhaps our, you could explain a bit of that to our listeners, many of whom will be bankers who are in a sort of line command type situation where they're carrying out express views and methodologies that are passed down. Um, just to understand that red team aspiration point would be really useful for us. So. In our work at Amicus with uh, the financial services industries, we're always struck by, particularly with the larger um, multi, multinational banks spreading across continents, struck by the very, very high degree of diversity, which of course is tremendous. And it's not something that a national entity like an army can access in anything like the same way. Um, but there are, and so naturally, one would expect banks to have a very uh, high degree of diversity of thought. But of course, once you join an organization, your thinking does get channeled down the lines of the business. And some of its thinking is quite traditional, and people kind of fall in line with that because actually conforming is good for their career prospects, et cetera, et cetera, gives them a slightly easier time. Actually, to have uh, really uh, robust and resilient plans, the more disquiet, uh, conflict's too strong a word, but disagreement you have when you're formulating your plans is much more likely to give you that, that outcome. And the military does tend to recruit and train its people to conform to certain models. And that can lead to what we call groupthink, which means basically it's in everyone's interest to agree because uh, actually we haven't really been empowered to think as far outside of the box as we would like. And to counter that tendency, the military uh, and other organizations employs this technique called red teaming, which is to give people in your team specific permission to disagree in a constructive way to make your plans more robust, because we're all, we're all guilty of the fact, well, we've made this plan, we've polished it, 
uh, we've all kind of consulted widely and we've agreed with it. And it's a brilliant plan. Of course, that form of complacency when it comes to executing a plan is creates all sorts of hazards and re red teaming is designed to counter that tendency. So the, the thought then of uh, groupthink, Jennifer, how can that then be at odds with the need for cohesion in teams that you talk about? So you've got this sort of dichotomy of let's not all think the same. And, and as Sir Peter says, let's challenge constructively, uh, not just simply to destroy colleagues' careers. Um, but how do we promote cohesion in teams when in some aspects of finance and other walks of life, there is high level of competition between the individuals in the team? Yeah, I think, first of all, I think groupthink is fantastic for cohesion. If everybody's agreeing with you, everybody tends to get on very well. And it's much more challenging when people have different points of view. Yeah. And it's incumbent on the, the chair of the meeting or the leader of that team to be able to handle that, that kind of conflict. Um, in terms of when you've got a really competitive group of individuals, alpha males, alpha females potentially, in a room and, and you're trying to build a team, that's very difficult. And it also links very much into the way that people are rewarded and remunerated. A lot of this competitiveness comes from, um, you know, is linked very closely to people's salaries and people's bonuses. So that's a really tricky environment to manage in. I think it's about making sure that everybody understands the needs of the organization and really where they fit into making the organization successful and the interdependencies between the other members in the team and the organization. It's a bit like um, when the UK really cottoned on to cycling in the Olympic games. And it wasn't just about making the team better. It was about making sure that the really competitive individuals within the cycling team understood what it was that they needed, the journey that they needed to go on um, to build the cohesion in the team. It takes a strong leader to manage a competitive team, um, though, and I think <clears throat> from an amicus point of view, we, we don't think there's an awful lot of that around at the moment. I think we, 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 we prefer if there was a bit more strong leadership. So a leadership deficit um, probably demonstrated through the financial crisis in our sector a decade or more ago, uh, perhaps some of it being demonstrated uh, now through the leadership of a crisis uh, in the pandemic. And it, it never ceases to amaze me when I arrive somewhere and something's gone wrong and we find that people have behaved the way they've been incentivized to behave. Um, don't be surprised. That's you know that goes without saying. Um, so Peter, on that point, values and standards is a is a term that military uses. Um, can you perhaps take us down the journey of commander's intent and allowing a sort of devolution of power down the line, so that those who who are far removed from activity aren't micromanaging it from those who may be in in many cases geographically dispersed is that something you see a lack of in finance or is that something that finance is is doing quite well i think it's something that finance is is trying to do now i think one has to recognize that um, the forces of regulation are not always helpful in this regard because they tend to make people more risk averse and they tend to deter people from wanting to accept personal responsibility 
and accountability. And of course, if you're going to delegate anything down through an organization, you're absolutely right to say you've got to know that those people are going to behave in terms of an ethical uh, code, but also a professional code, a technical code that is going to lead to success. You know, and the values and standards piece is that ethical code. And it's, it's about how we behave in the marketplace, but it's also how we treat one another and how we treat our clients, all those sorts of things. Um, and so you want, you want that, but you also need to have a, a sort of common way of operating so that you under, people understand what you expect them to do uh, in a given situation when responsibilities are delegated down to them and uh, you know, they're given the freedom to read the situation as they see it and make decisions without having to refer things upwards, which of course is so detrimental to agility, innovation, adaptability, and so on, when you've got to keep asking several levels up and by the time you get the answer, because the person who's deciding has got, is also deciding for everybody else, um, the situation's moved on, you've missed that feeding opportunity. And in the case of a, a battlefield scenario, situation might be completely different, you've missed your chance, or in fact, things have got worse because you didn't back fast enough, all those sorts of things. So I do think that this um, delegated approach is the answer. Uh, I think that it has to deal with the frictions and constraints of regulation in any arena, and the military is not uh, absent its regulation, but we, we tend to be self-regulating because there's no people, people don't really want to be wandering around the battlefield with white coats and moodboards marking your work, unless it's a training exercise. And, and so you have to rely on the integrity of people and, you know, that quite often gets um, talked about retrospectively where you have these big inquiries into incidents, things like that, where everybody sort of joins the bandwagon. But for the most part, that works really, really well. Um, but I recognize that in the financial services world, um, the tendency for regulation to, this is in my, this is my opinion, what I've observed, uh, others may not necessarily see it this way, it for be to uh, more about what to think rather than how to think, means that we're, there are layers upon layers upon layers of more regulation for every new scenario that gets exposed. And, uh, you know, there must be people at the very cutting edge who have first mover advantage because they can do certain things before the regulation comes in. Well, that's not a particularly good solution either because it, you really want people operating on a how to think basis rather than just... Um, sort of enacting edicts that come from a regulator once they've had a chance to catch up. And it was very interesting talking to some of our financial services colleagues about how fast um, organizations bomb burst to their homes with their computers, with all of the servers supporting them in a dispersed way. And they far outstripped uh, the ability of any regulator to keep pace because of the COVID imperative. And that probably was liberating for the whole sector in terms of a change to ways of working, which if you had to try and reside it in with the agreement of the regulator would have taken years. So, you know, that's a sort of digression. So I'm, I'm firmly believing that uh, young people and up and coming leaders want to have the responsibility or the ones that you want to employ should want to have the responsibility. And those sorts of systems that rely on delegation and empowerment rather than uh, centralization and constraint are, uh, are the ones you want. Can I take you back then to maybe one of the first times where you delegated authority, either as uh, a relatively new uh, commissioned lieutenant into the Royal Engineers or perhaps later in life as a brigadier or even beyond when you were, you were chief of the general staff. 
is there a feeling in the pit of your stomach when you're delegating down the line uh, a concern? Because I know there will be senior leaders listening here, many of whom fall into the trap of, I'll do it myself because therefore it will be okay and I'm accountable. And there will be those who will take the risk because risk is by degree, not yes or no, um, with, uh, with junior reports. Did you feel somewhat nervous about it through your career? I think at the very beginning of my career, I, uh, I was probably loath to let go. But uh, I think you very quickly learn that you can trust the whole system in all its levels to operate that way. And what people want is that they're hungry for that sort of freedom. And the last thing they want is someone over their shoulder. And anyway, actually, in an awful lot of um, tactical situations, where funny enough, the Royal Engineers is a case in point because it's spread quite thinly around across uh, the battlefield more so than uh, infantry and armor corps tend to concentrate for obvious reasons. You know, the Royal Engineers are essentially providing a dispersed service and priorities shift and they move around. Um, so you cannot be everywhere. And so you, you really force into a situation where you have to trust people. But I very quickly learned that that wasn't, a, wasn't demanding. You could trust people. And they would very often have much better ideas and ways of doing things. I mean, initially, when I was a second lieutenant, I was delegating to swarthy corporals who were 10 years older than me. So that was, you know, it was a bit illogical to think I knew more than they did. When I sort of, uh, when I sort of found myself up at formation level, um, talking to battalion commanders, the brigade commander, um, I had absolute confidence that I, that was the way to go because I couldn't be everywhere. I was I was only really affecting the uh, the conduct of the brigade through my ability to select the right organisation for the right job and allocate you know allocate trust if you like to the people who I thought were most likely to deliver success. But I never had concerns. There might be occasions where you get a new organization coming under your wing and you want to sound them out a bit before you give them your biggest risk. But that's only natural. That comes down to the bond of trust between um, leaders at different levels. And we spend an awful lot of time, or the army spends an awful lot of time, building those relationships, professionally, socially, sporting, whatever it might be, to make sure that you really, really do know what's making people tick and you can anticipate what their reaction is going to be to a certain type of stress or task or requirement, and you know how much support you're going to have to give them. And, you know, when you, and this actually comes back to your earlier point about people coming up and saying, um, well, actually, you've asked me to do that, but you haven't given me enough stuff, or I think the timeline's too, too tight, or I need another piece of resource, I need something you haven't given me more intelligence capability or more tanks or whatever it might be. And you basically frame your approach to um, a battlefield challenge, whether it's in stride or whether it's a deliberate activity that may be being planned to be executed two days out or whatever, you frame that around your knowledge of individuals. So if you've got someone who's always asking for more, you have to find a way of saying, right, that's all very well, um, yeah. you know, David, but um, we haven't got any more, so you have to get on with your... Whereas other people might be more inclined to... Uh, not be gung-ho but say uh, okay we'll get on with that and actually you think no they probably accepted that a little bit too readily for that uh, point takes me on to the significant shift in working patterns through pandemic moving from office-based in the main 
to home-based, particularly in financial services all around the globe. And we have members in some parts of the world that have been in lockdown for hundreds of days. Do you see any significant benefits in delegated authority within that scenario that Sir Peter alluded to, that trusting your people and having the humility to recognize you may have people more talented than you around you. Um, I know the Mars organization promoted people all over the place from different disciplines and sectors and whatever. Clearly they had no hangups about promoting smart people. Um, whereas some organizations I'm afraid do have a sort of ego deficit perhaps. I think lots of organizations do. And um, the best people that I've, I've worked for throughout my career were really strong people in their own right, but absolutely trusted and delegated to their team. They gave us the freedom to grow and to challenge them. Um, they were the most fun teams that I've worked in. But it takes a strong leader, again, to, to be able to handle that and to not be led by ego, but to be led by a sense of service, really, that the, the leader's job in a team is to set the conditions to make the team thrive and make the team uh, as good as it can possibly be. But it is really, it's challenging. I think it, it did pay dividends for those leaders that did trust their teams when all of a sudden everybody disappeared to, to their homes. Um, it was much easier for those teams where there was that degree of trust to, to work in a really strange environment um, than those that perhaps didn't have that degree of trust and were checking over people's shoulders all the time. So Peter, just a, a very brief question as I come to you as our time together winds down. Do you fear that we have the, the, the cult of the celebrity leader at the moment? I don't think there's a, there's a place for celebrity leaders as a sort of cult um, or as a genre. I think the quintessential thing about leadership is humility. And the very best uh, leaders, the ones that are distinguished from people who are pretty competent, are the ones who have emotional intelligence. And that tends to be very, very closely linked to humility in terms of human makeup. In fact, you can't, you, you know, emotional intelligence is a very thing, difficult thing to define. And you have to learn it really through your humility and ability to put other people's sort of emotions ahead of you. Um, that's a whole different talk in its own right. So I'm, I'm not attracted to that nature at all, and I, that, that cult at all, that nature of behavior. And my, you know, we've always been taught to believe that, um, you know, if something goes well, the team takes the, takes the credit. And if uh, something goes badly, the boss takes the blame. And I think that's not a bad yardstick. That might take us on to uh, a debate in due course uh, after this one on level five leadership and all of those really good things. As ever, our time has marched on and we have arrived at the destination. Although I'm sure we could have had much more to talk about. Perhaps the Institute will ask you both back to another podcast in due course. All that remains is for me to thank our guests, Jennifer Carnegie and Sir Peter Wall from Amicus, for joining us today. This leadership podcast was brought to you by the Chartered Banker Institute. From the production team and me, Bill McCall. Goodbye.